Well, good morning. Oh, thanks, man. My name is Jordan. If you're new here, um, so glad to be together this morning. Welcome everybody who might be watching us online. Uh, I'm here today to talk a little bit about Jesus. That's what we've been doing. We've be- just been uh, working our way through some of some of what Jesus said and some of what Jesus did, so that we can reacquaint ourselves with Him. And hopefully become a little bit more like him in the process. Last week we kind of jumped forward in the story. We went to Luke chapter 11 to think about or or to look at Jesus' teaching on prayer. This week we're kind of jumping back. So it's a little bit maybe disjointed for you. But uh, this week we're jumping back to Luke 7. And we're going to be looking at one of the stories that is really one of my favorite stories. In fact, uh, I preached my second sermon that I ever preached, I was 17, uh, on this text. And so I've been thinking about this text for a very long time. It's one of my favorite stories. And so I'm going to rewind us a little bit and remind us of what happens. Oh, I turned it off. That is the opposite direction. A little bit of what happens in Luke 6. So in Luke 6, we have Jesus give a sermon. We often call it the Sermon on the Plain. And in this sermon, we get the blessed are the poor, kind of that little bit of we sometimes call the Beatitudes. We get some teaching about love and some teaching about judgment. And Jesus describes the love of God in in this sermon as being so generous, so big, that he lets his love, his goodness, his grace fall upon the good people and the bad people. He lets his rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus says, if we are going to become the children of God, if we're, and, and that's what children are like, right? Children look and act like their parents. Uh, sometimes we don't realize that until we become parents, but we end up often looking and acting like our parents. So if we are going to look like God, then his love has to look like our love. Our love has to look like his love. And if his love is this big and this generous, that it flows out to everyone, then our love must look similar to this. In chapter 7, he's going to illustrate this by this story. Uh, But Jesus, uh, in this chapter, as he's talking about love, talks about this, this overwhelming power of love to bring even the worst of enemies together again. And even in this way, Jesus sort of quietly critiques the idea of having enemies. Why do you have enemies? How did that come about Did you take yourself and put yourself in their shoes and and through the hard and difficult work of listening and understanding, you came to understand their perspective and after understanding their perspective, decided, nope, you're still wrong. Have you done the hard work of searching and listening and, and hearing somebody's heart? Do you know them so well inside and out in all of reality, indeed, that you can say for certain you have it 100% right and they have it 100% wrong? No. Of course not. We are given one spot and one place and one perspective. And so we're warned by Jesus that if we are going to live in the path of love, then we cannot also hold in our heart judgment and condemnation towards others. That as soon as we do that, we negate the power and the path of love because we've already decided somebody is guilty, maybe unredeemable even. 
And we've all had the experience where you sat down with somebody and you found out the rumors that they were terrible people weren't really true. Where you found out, oh, well, they aren't as bad, they aren't as wrong. We've all come to the point where we realize that, oh, that somebody wasn't as wrong as we thought they were. And, and in that moment, we have to repent because we realize that we weren't as loving as we should have been. And so Jesus is drawing out like this, this idea, this, this path of love. And he's saying we need to move beyond the idea of always finding a way to segregate people into camps so that we can understand where they are and set ourselves either inside their camp with them or in another camp against them. Jesus is taking and looking at this thing we do over and over and over again. And he judges that. He condemns this thing we do. And he says, Y'all need to do better. Love is bigger than this. In fact, life is bigger than this. And so Jesus is teaching this. He's prepping us. He's, He's helping us to understand that indeed the kingdom of God is amongst us. That's one of the big messages of Luke. In fact, that's one of Luke's famous quotes Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you. Why is it among you? Because we have sought and strove together to achieve some portion of the path of love and giving and forgiving. And through this, we're bringing a little bit of the kingdom of God here. We are preparing the way for the Lord. My whole life, I have, well, I shouldn't say my whole life. For the past 30 years, I have been in church listening to people ask for Jesus to come back. Jesus will come back on his own time. In the meantime, we are tasked with living the way of Jesus. And by living the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God comes near. And Jesus describes it in this sermon on the plain. He calls us to give and to forgive. He says the measure you measure to other people, that's the kind of measuring God uses. So you could have as much grace as you want based on how much grace you're willing to offer. That's incredibly good news if you're willing to offer a lot of grace. It's really terrible news if you're not. And so Jesus is calling us to be the people of grace, and we're going to see this illustrated now in this story. So if you if you're, uh, like to have your own Bible open, that's where we'll be in Luke chapter 7. I'm also going to put it up here, so if you just want to look and follow along, we can. But we're going to read this whole story. After he had, that is Jesus, finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly Highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent more friends. Saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not even presume to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To one, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Well, I love this story. Luke has a version of it, and Matthew tells, tells a similar story as well. I love both of these versions. I want us to kind of break into this story, but I hope that you see just as we read it, kind of how Jesus is operating in his own path, in his own way of love, as he described on that sermon in the plain. So we start with our centurion, our enemy. Uh, it's hard for us to kind of put ourselves in that place because centurion is probably just a, maybe a fictional. Maybe you've seen like some sort of movie or something, Spartacus, I don't know, something. You've seen centurions before. But they commanded around 80 or so soldiers. They were highly valued, um, usually by the upper echelon. They were advisors, and so very important men. So as they enter into Capernaum, which is more of a, a fishing village, if you can think of that, rather than like a city like we think of it, and this centurion, because of his authority and his power and the soldiers he commanded, may have commanded a large portion of watching over a, a portion of Capernaum. We don't know how much. But he had authority over this area. I, I see these words being used a lot on social media. Uh, dictator, tyrant. These words, uh, we use them flippantly. I encourage you to stop. Because we have no idea what a tyrant is. A tyrant, for them, would have been a centurion. Who had, as you have to understand, a completely blank check. The only thing a centurion had to do was make sure that, that the populace was quiet and taxes continued to flow. Which means that if you had a bad centurion, which was a lot of it, that centurion could walk into your house, take, ravage, own anything they want. I hope I don't need to go into the sordid details of what exactly that means. They had a completely blank Check. And their job as Roman soldiers was to make sure these Jewish people understood daily that they were under their boot. That's their job. Because in order to keep people quiet, you keep them scared, right? Keep them scared. And you finish them off with executions and crucifixions. Remember that this centurion probably oversaw himself as he rose up the ranks. Crucifixions. Of hundreds of Jews. This is how you executed people who you didn't like. So this is the centurion's life. This is who he is. This is, this is how people perceived him. And so when, when Jesus is standing there, and remember, he's standing there with his disciples. Who is in his disciples? Remember? Simon the Zealot. And what do zealots not love? Rome. Centurions, their whole deal is killing those guys. So Jesus is standing here. Simon the Zealot's over here. Remember James and John? Remember what they said when uh, a town wouldn't listen to Jesus? What did they ask for? Fire from heaven. They won't listen to, to you, Jesus. Should we burn them up? <laughs> Jesus says, y'all are psychos. Get out of here. <laughs> These are the people standing next to Jesus. As this guy runs, these guys run up on him and say, listen, a centurion needs your help. If you're a good Jew, what's the answer? Let him die. That's our enemy. And that's why the messengers that the, Jews, that, that the centurion sends is, is immediately begins like, 
stumbling over these words. He deserves it. He deserves it. He deserves it because he loves us. He's not like those other guys. He actually deserves this. He actually deserves this. Well, he has to say that because that's the problem. They're assuming Jesus will say no because the centurion is their enemy. And what I love about Jesus is how often he is quiet. What does Jesus say in this story? They come and they ask him, and he just goes. Do you think he needed an explanation? Why did Jesus do all these miracles? He didn't heal everyone. That wasn't his mission. His mission was not to come and make sure Israel had no sick people, no hungry people, no oppressed people in it. Jesus did not do that. He came and preached the kingdom of God. But when he saw somebody who was in need, immediately we see him move in love and move in compassion and move in non-condemning ways because he could have easily condemned the centurion because the centurion, despite his gifts to the Jewish people, does not deserve Jesus' grace. Does not deserve Jesus' grace at all. How do we treat our enemies You'll notice that second piece of the story. He sends new people, friends, to meet Jesus and say, Jesus, don't even come under my roof. You might remember with me, and if you don't, I'm going to remind you, (laughs) that it was a tradition that Jewish people would not go into non-Jewish people's houses. To go into that house would have been to make himself unclean. Now, this isn't in the Bible exactly. It's a tradition that extends from the Bible because the Bible in the Old Testament, especially in the purity codes that we get in Leviticus, is very specific about all of the different ways in which people can become clean and unclean. And this, this, this fear then that you might become unclean became so prevalent that instead of, instead of even, even, instead of not breaking the specific laws listed, they wouldn't even go near a person who they thought was unclean. I won't even go into that centurion's house because they might make me impure. This, I think, is an incredibly important point. Did God want that? Was that what God wanted out of his chosen people? To lock themselves out from other people? I think this is an important point because we can see how traditions expand on top of, on top of scripture. And how religion can become deeply toxic. Because if we get into that mindset that we can't go to this place to see these people, immediately, once we do that, we create in ourselves a false sense of self-righteousness. In fact, if you sit here today and there's a person in your mind or people in your mind and you think to yourself, I am better than them, you need to put Pharisee on your chest. If you stop eating with people who are different than you, you will become a Pharisee. And if that word doesn't scare you because it's a Bible word, we use Bible words around here sometimes, let me put it differently. If you stop eating with people that are different from you, you will become an insufferable, self-righteous bore. And you will think that your own poop smells good. And you all know people who are like that. We all know people who are like that. And Jesus is teaching us. He is teaching us how to avoid the self-righteousness that can come as we continue on this path of growth towards God. And he says it begins by not forgetting this fundamental truth that 
you are the enemy of God. And as you were God's enemy, Jesus reached to you. And so if we would look like God, we must reach to our enemies. That is the path of love. That is the only path for hope. That's the only path for healing for any of us, every single one of us is here today with even an ounce of grace in our bodies. It is because someone expressed that grace to us. Because God gave that grace to us. And he is calling us through not only his teaching, but his example to be the one who goes to the centurion. You remember, you advanced Bible people, that this sequence that we have in Luke is a foretaste of the sequence we have in Acts. Remember that, the, that Luke is just one part one. That acts as part two. Luke wrote both of these books. And in Luke, we encounter the centurion. But in Acts chapter 11, we encounter a centurion. And in that encounter, Peter is on top of his roof. And he's hungry, like many of you are. And he has a vision of bacon descending in a giant bowl before him, as many of you are. And the Lord says, take and eat. And he says... I don't eat unclean things. I would never, I would never, it says in here not to do that, God. I would never do that. So God shows him again. And then God shows him again. And then God shows him again. And finally, there's a knock on the door. And the centurion's messengers ask Peter to come to his house to hear the gospel preached. God says to Peter, as he sees this descending uh, platter of unclean food, do not call what I call clean profane. God says, do not call what I call clean profane. So in the direct moment, Peter thinks, well, you're talking about all of these animals, the unclean animals, and like, now we have sort of an openness to like eating bacon or whatever. Bats, I guess, if you want to go. No, not that. That, is actually, that was actually a bad joke and bad timing, too. All that. Anyway, what was I saying? I got lost. Bacon. <laughs> that always brings you back. So he thinks it's within the context of food. But as soon as he recognizes a knock on the door and as soon as he hears this message that he is supposed to go and see the centurion, he realizes that the clean thing that God was talking about was not the animals, but the people. God says, don't you call that centurion unclean? Because I am calling him clean. Go. Go. Proclaim the gospel. God surprises Peter, with this grace. And we're surprised because what we see in both stories of the centurions is a greater faith than the people who are supposed to have the greatest faith. That's what we see. We see the faith coming out of the enemy. We're supposed to be surprised by the interactions that Jesus has with this person, but we're supposed to also be surprised by the amount of faith. What, is, what does Jesus say about him? He says, I have... you." When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such. And here's the word pistis. That's the Greek word pistis. We translate that word faith. 
most often, but the word can be translated in various different ways. It can mean something like trust. It can mean something like kind of having a security that this thing will happen in the future. It can mean allegiance. It can mean binding things. It can mean various different things. We have to decide what's happening here. But what I wanted to point out in this moment is that what he seems to be doing, this, this, this centurion seems to be recognizing, is not simply Jesus' power to do a miracle. It's just a simple faith in Jesus' ability to act. Because he talks about him, his own stuff. He says, I have authority. As, as a commander, I tell people to go and they go. Come and they come. Do this and they do it. I have authority. And he says, Jesus, you have that authority. He's not talking about what Jesus can do. He's talking about who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of people. Jesus is Lord of matter. He's Lord of like sickness. He can make things that he can't even see down the road locked up in a house. He can command that sickness to go and it will go because his lordship is over all. And the centurion sees it. He's not just saying, I believe you can do it. He's saying, I trust your lordship. I trust your power. I bend my knee to you. And that's what's so compelling about this because you have to understand to bend a knee to anyone other than Rome is for this centurion to break his oath. For him to say, you are Lord. You are God. You are king. You are the one that sends. You are the one that commands. He is doing something so bold right here. And what I find so wonderful about it is, think of another, hold this just for a second. Think of another story, real quick. The disciples on the boat in the storm, remember that? The storm and it's, it's going, and then Jesus stands up and he rebukes the winds and the waves, and it goes still. And what do the disciples say? What do they want? What do they do? They wonder, who is this guy? What's this about? We don't understand who he is. They've seen him heal, they've seen him preach, they've seen him teach, they just saw him calm a storm. And they're not sure who he is. This centurion has just heard about Jesus. And he is sure that Jesus is Lord. Which is why in the New Testament, this man is the only one Jesus claims has the greatest faith. And the centurions are the ones that will put him to death. So everything about this story is inverted. It's opposite. It's it's what the scriptures always do. They always, instead of the firstborn son, they take the secondborn son. Instead of the hero being the man of the story, it goes to the woman of the story. Because, Because God is constantly taking what we expect and flipping it on its head. And that is why, backing all the way up to where we started, that is why Jesus pushes so hard on love and not prejudging and condemning and encouraging us rather to give and forgive and measure out our grace in abundance because we are apt to write off centurions like this. And if they had written him off, we would have lost the greatest story of faith in the story of Jesus. So what we have here is an incredible moment of Jesus living out exactly, exactly what he is preaching and showing us the same story because this story is all of our story. We are a part of all of this. We've all had a similar experience of some kind or another. We are all called toward love and toward grace. We see 
if I bring it all to kind of a bullet point conclusion, we see Jesus teaching us to love without condemnation, to love without measure. And this is difficult, and it is imperfect, and it will go with fits and starts, and you will fail, and you will succeed, and then you'll fail again, and all of that doesn't matter because God's love is still being poured out onto us. This is the path of love. We see Jesus demonstrate that by loving his enemies. We see in the enemy a greater allegiance to Jesus than those who were around him. And therefore, we see that we must challenge our presuppositions and strive to live in the way of love. I need you all to do me, well, I need you all to do your Christian duty this week, if we put it that way. Our task is to build bridges. Our task is to make make peace. Our task is to ask for forgiveness and to give forgiveness and to begin conversations that bring healing and life to people. That is our task this week. That is what you are after. Surrendering, surrendering our own pride and stepping humbly into the world to listen, to learn, to love. Let's do that. Let's stand and sing this last song.